So you want to read Tolkien? We're happy to have you with us. Join us as we work our way through the Silmarillion. I'm Caitlin. I'm Rachel. And I'm Emily. Let's dig into this week's reading. For Middle-earth. If I tried to pronounce every letter in this name, my tongue would fall out of my mouth. I mean, I am on my second giant glass of Prosecco right now. So... Sally Ho! That's what Into the West means. Let's go home. We're unqualified, but we have ideas. So here we are with our first real episode. Um, Welcome to the show, everyone. And I guess let's just dive right into it. Did everybody do the reading? I finished it! We actually read it! I mean, it was like eight pages long, but still, I feel very accomplished. Both chapters together were 20 pages. Okay, whatever. I did the first part in mine. There was like nothing. I read the E version, which will be the only time I read. Well, no, one more week probably, but um, because I was literally reading it on the plane to Stockholm, which is an excellent mood setter, I guess. The fact that I'm staring out at Old Town Stockholm, but not so great for my studiousness. Yeah. Or knowledge of how many pages. So it's going to be really confusing for you when I quote something with a page number. I'll have to make sure to read it out. Well, to be fair, there is like 10 million different versions of this book, so page numbers aren't going to mean much. That's a good point. Um, We should probably talk about the additions we have, because I guess that would help. I have the second edition paperback, which was published in 1999 in the United Kingdom and 2001. It's the one with the burnt gold mountain on the cover with a blue sun and a weird Viking-y ship. And I'm reading the same one. I have a very similar yet slightly different paperback with just a black mountain and a blue sun and a Viking ship. Hmm. Well, it's not Viking, it's... It's elvish, but it really does look like a Viking ship if Vikings liked ducks more. It's a swan. Having looked at Viking ships today... (laughs) Do, Do they not like ducks or swans? I don't know, but I've walked past a lot of ducks, too. <laughs> There's actually a sci-fi bookshop here uh, right by my hotel, and I totally went and said hi to all the copies of Tolkien and then told myself I shouldn't buy all of them. Stay strong. That's probably smart, but you could bring some home. I could. I could. None of them were particularly special, though. They didn't have the Silmarillion in Swedish, which would probably be about as easy to discern as reading the Silmarillion in English. <laughs> You know, I actually didn't think that these chapters were that difficult to read. I mean, there were, I annotated my copies. So there are some paragraphs where I like circled entire sentences that lasted like 12 lines. And I said, what is this? But um, for the most part, I didn't find it that difficult. I felt like I eased in real nicely. Yeah, You're right with the, the sort of long sentences. It's almost like reading uh, Paul's letters in the Bible. Let's just keep going and going and going. Oh. <laughs> no. When he starts talking about um, the children of Iluvatar as elves and men, I straight up, I mean, it's 16 lines and right next to it I wrote, what the fuck is this? I had to read it out loud <laughs> twice before I fully understood what his sentence structure was. Uh, because his habit of using both a semicolon and a conjunction is incorrect. Like, I just... And Emmy gets the first swear of the episode. Nice. 
I, you know what, I should really tweet pictures of my annotations in the margins of this book, because some of them are gems. But okay, we were going to start with characters. Oh, okay, yes, yes, sorry, yes. Um, I just wanted to do a quick disclaimer, um, just to mention that a lot of the information here may be contradicted elsewhere in, like, the Book of Lost Tales or in uh, the the books that have been published more recently, like The Children of Huron or the, the Book of Baron and Luthien, um, but we're only going to be talking about what's in this book, The Silmarillion. But yes, so this week's reading was the Aini Lindale, which translates to the music of the Einar, and the Veloquenta, the tale of the Velar. And the characters, does anybody else want to list all the characters in these chapters? Um. <laughs> there were so many. Um, where do we want to start with characters? Do we want to uh, start with the first chapter of the Ainur and go through the characters that were introduced there. Sure. Um, so we start off right off the bat with Eru, the one who in Arda is called the Eluvatar. Am I pronouncing that right, guys? How did you do it in your heads? I believe it is Eluvatar. Yep. At least it is now. So in my head, he was like the greatest god of gods. Do you want to go over the names of the Valar? The names of the Valar or the names of the Ainur? Because they're not Valar yet. This was the part that I really hated. Um, was the way he just kept changing the names of things. Oh, that's not going to stop. I know. I know. But uh, it was mostly just peevish that he would use the word Valar and it'd be like, okay, like I know what these are, but you haven't defined it yet. And then at the end of the next page, he'd be like, by the way, these are elves. And I'd have to be like, okay, well, that's rude. Yeah, that's that's very common in this book. Like he'll just sort of mention something offhand and two chapters later dive into it. Yep. And then yeah, this is who this is. Called this by someone else. Called this by someone else. But who really knows anyway? Yeah, but which of those names do I actually have to remember? Um, for the most part, the ones I wrote down in the notes. <laughs> mm. Um, I went by the ones that I've seen before on the internet. Oh, I know who that is. Tumblr has talked about them. I've not fallen deep into the Lord of the Rings Tumblr hole yet, so I will have to explore that sometime. Okay, so the main sort of Einar that we are concerned with, who become the Valar, I suppose, is Manwe, Varda, Ulmo, Aule, Yvanna, Mandos, Lorien, Este, Vere, Este, Tulkas, Nessa, Orome, and, uh, shoot, where the heck am I? I missed one, didn't I? I think we got Estee twice. <laughs> yep, I missed one. She's twice as important. Sorry. Uh, well, and Melkor, who is not a Valar. He's not of the Valar. Because we hate him. I don't hate him! I have oh. so many feelings. Very. Did I say Vana? Jeez. Okay, let me read this again. <laughs> Not my own personal notes this time. Manwe, Ulmo, Aule, Orome, Mandos, Lorien, and Tulkas, the men. And then the women are Varda, Yavana, Niana, Este, Vere, I guess? Vana and Nessa. Probably. Yay! And most of those people don't show up until the Valaquenta, which is really just like a recap of their greatest hits. 
Yes. When we start off mm-hmm. in the Anulindale, if I'm pronouncing that right, subtitle for this chapter is The Music of the Anur. Um, we're introduced first to Eru, who is, um, in my head, the god of gods, right? He is basically just this like wavelength of godliness hovering around in a giant void when he decides that he would like some company. And so he creates the Anur, who are basically like his slightly less talented acapella children, um, is kind of how I understood it. He like split his brain and his talents amongst all of them. Um, I would say they're born from different parts of his mind. Not that he like gave up parts of his mind for them. Okay. Um, I don't know yeah. how that's different from what I just said, but that's cool. Yeah, he's he's still in his he's in his completeness, but like they. They are manifestations of aspects of his mind. Yeah, sorry. I was just interpreting what you said differently, I suppose. He's not a piece of pie that you cut pieces out and share them with others. He's like, you take the pie and then you also have pumpkins. And He would be so much more fun if he was Because then he'd be gone and I wouldn't have to push him into traffic. Um, I really hate him. Like, God, what a dick. Um, so anyway, he creates these Anur and he lets them sing for a little while in the void. And then he goes and shows them things. And I'm going to put quotes around the word things, um, because they're just so majestic that suddenly all of his children shut up. Um, I thought that was the vaguest sentence in this entire chapter. I guess like not much exists yet. No. So he's just like, here is the void. And here are us. Yeah. Let's, let's sing now. Um, yeah, so, and then he shares with them a theme, um, and they start to, to sing again. They start to play their little mind instruments, um, and the music echoes into the void, and suddenly the void is not the void, which I thought was really interesting that the creation of the world came from the Anur and not from um, Eluvatar himself. The way that I always pictured it, is that um, Eluvatar wanted to create creation, and in order to make a harmony, he needed other voices. So he created the Ainur. And I also love how you just so offhandedly read my favorite line from this chapter, and you just like, whatever. What's, the, what's <laughs> your favorite line? The, um, um, the music, oh, and the music and the echo of the music went out into the void, and it was not void. <laughs> I underlined that in my book. Yeah. I was like, wow, that's deep. Three paragraphs in. Okay. <clears throat> so then they sing creation into existence. Existence into creation. Uh-oh. Um, then we get existential crises. Yeah, I guess, I guess... Maybe that is what Melkor was, what his problem was. Well, yeah, so he, Melkor is introduced, he's the first of the Anur that gets an actual name, and he is boasted as being, like, not only the greatest, most talented of the Anur, but he also has a piece of all of the gifts that his siblings have. So he is, like, multi-talented, whereas the rest of them have one specific focus, I guess was the way that I read that. And he wants more than to just sing this harmony, right, where there's all of this noise in his father's house. So he heads out to look at the void, and it's the first place where he can hear himself think. Um, And I thought it was really interesting that 
immediately the idea of independent thought is ascribed with greed. It's worth it to note that Professor Tolkien is very Catholic. Oh, I could tell immediately. This reads like the book of Genesis. I, I have no idea what Emmy actually said that this was like, but I was going for the Cliff's Notes version of um, Paradise Lost. I haven't read Paradise Lost. I have no idea. Okay, I've read I've read bits of it, um, but yeah, it, it's very much like Melkor just is like Lucifer. Mm-hmm. Pretty much, it's you know the the closest, and then you have the whole element of um, Eru knowing. Everything. He's the only one who knows the entire design, but then he creates these aspects of himself, knowing that then, theoretically, he must know that Melkor is going to go awry, and yet he does it anyway. And then you have those profound questions of what does it mean when you have a god who deliberately introduces terribleness into the universe? Yeah, because doesn't he say when... When Melkor is singing his sort of discordant song, afterwards, Luvatar is like, yeah, I knew that was going to happen. That was the point of the song, or the song was supposed to do that. And then my bit that I thought was kind of a bitch. Hold on, let me find it. So after Luvatar sort of interrupts Melkor from his discordantness, and uh, the line in the book is, and Melkor was filled with shame, of which came secret anger. And I'm like, that's just such a bitch thing to do, <laughs> to like shame somebody in front of the entire class. Exactly, that's what I thought. Like, God, parenting 101. Yeah. I would have been pissed too. And the way that Iluvatar, uh, I use air quotes here when I say talks. I don't know, about creation and stuff, it it doesn't lend itself to the idea of free will. He's like, yes, you were all going to do this, and this is how I meant for it to be. No, it doesn't at all. I completely agree. Um, I thought it was really interesting that the book starts off in, I mean, it's like the first page. It talks about how um, the only way that you can understand anyone else is by listening to them. Um, and the first thing he does when Melkor brings his song back from the void is attempt to override it with other music. Um, so he, Melkor introduces this theme that is discordant with the song and the harmony that he was playing with the other Ainur. Um, and Ilu- Iluvatar? Ilvatar? Um, it's going to take me a while to get that name right. He's First off, he smiles when this theme is introduced because he's a smug bastard and he knew that this was going to happen. And then he introduces a new theme and makes everybody change their song to be louder, I think was that one. Um, because he thinks that if he introduces a new song, Melkor will come back to the pack. Um, and it doesn't work. And Melkor manages to turn a bunch of the other Ainur towards his way of thinking, his his thought process. And so Iluvatar introduces a third theme that was broken into two parts. Um, and that's the first time he's allowed more than one song to be played, which I thought was interesting. But I thought that like the themes of his song were kind of awful. Right? They play a part of sorrow and they play one part in vanity. Uh, I'm literally just sitting over here screaming, Paradise Lost, Paradise Lost, in my head. (laughs) Um, Because, yeah, that's it. Like, canonically, the angels don't have free will. And it's that 
it's, it's just, yeah. My one thing about the free will, like, it doesn't sound that way, but then later on in the Vala Quinta, I believe, um, when they decide, when they go down to the earth, or when they go down to existence, and they become the Valar, they do get to choose their gender. And we're jumping ahead a bit. We are. But, and that's the first time we really see them choose something. But we don't. Because I thought that too, um, except because I wrote down next to this, like, this is all trans politics right here. And I'm going to read the quote. Um, this is still in the in the Ainulindale, actually. The Ainulindale. Ainulindale. I don't think that's how an E with umlaut sounds. Anyway, doesn't matter. Um, it starts off, I the paragraph wrong. starts, now we could all be wrong. It doesn't, it doesn't change your enjoyment of the book. Yeah. Um, now the Valar took to themselves shape and hue. But when they desire to clothe themselves, the Valar take upon them forms some as of male and some as of female, for that difference of temper they had even before their beginning. And it is but bodied forth in the choice of each, not made by the choice, even as with us, male and female may be shown by the raiment, but it is not made thereby. So, I think it's, they still didn't have a choice as far as which way they chose, right, is kind of the point. You just, are, they just are what they are. Okay. Like, they're not born a certain way. Okay, I, I sort of read that bit differently, I guess, which is fair. Um, when he said that, of course, I didn't note the line that you literally just read. What page is that on? It's twenty page 21. Not going to match up with me. Okay. That's tragic. Yep. See, the, the line about, but bodied forth in the choice of each, not made by the choice, even as with us, male and female may be shown by the raiment, but is not made thereby. I sort of interpreted that as being like, your gender is just some clothes that you put on. And it's not your, like, what you are inside. But maybe I'm giving Tolkien a lot more credit than I want to, or than I should be here. Well, no, because on the one hand, I agree. But I think the point is that their choice already, like, the idea that there are no not going to be any trans Valar because they can be whoever they want. Um, and yet, before this point, they've only used male pronouns. Yes, this is that is problematic, that before they sort of choose, he does only ever use the male pronoun. And and the I remember, like, at the beginning of that paragraph, wherever it was, I've lost it again because I'm stupid. I remember being very upset about the way he described the gender of all of them. But then I decided to be happy about it just because I could. I don't know. Well, I like the idea. I like the way he describes the gender of us, right? I'm assuming that his, when he says, even as with us, male and female may be shown by the raiment, but it is not made thereby. I'm, I like that sentence. I'm assuming it ascribes to humanity on actual earth and not, I don't know, wherever this is currently taking place. This continent has a lot of names the kingdom of Arda. Um, because it's basically saying that it can be shown by 
the clothes you wear or the body that you're inhabiting, but your sex does not necessarily make up your gender. And for anybody who's listening, if you don't know what the word raiment means, um, it usually applies to like women's clothing when you bedeck it with jewels, but in general, it can just mean like something that looks particularly splendorous. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So uh, the line before that, where they choose forms, some as of male and some as of female, and like those are their only options. That's kind of shitty. But it is. It, it does also seem to me that Melkor didn't have a choice. Like later on when he chooses a form or when he decides to take form, he he just is a man. Like, and I kind of like that by that time he's kind of a piss baby. And I kind of like that he's just automatically a man. Well, I think part of it was the idea that your disposition is going to affect the way you present on the outside. Um, but I, at least from the point of view of the Enulindale, um, I'm offended that you don't like Melkor because he is my little baby. I really felt like Melkor's... Um, story and his character arc was a very problematic domestic violence narrative. He just, like, they're abused by Iluvatar in this book when he, like, takes away their free will and forces them to sing these songs a certain way. And some of them are cool with it, but obviously not all of them are. Yeah. He's not a good dad. At least not to Melkor. That, it is interesting. I, I never really thought about it. Like, the parts of this chapter about music and creation I've always sort of felt were really beautiful. I love the, the idea that creation was brought into, or no, existence was brought into creation by music. Me too. I love that a lot, and there are parts of this that are very, very beautiful. And then there are parts, like you said, of how he shamed him in front of everyone and all these other things that are kind of like, well... Maybe if you'd encouraged him to create his own stuff, you know, it wouldn't have been that bad. Right, like you start off with this idea that if everybody listens to each other, we can live in harmony. Um, It's really the only way to live in harmony. And then Iluvatar doesn't listen to anybody. His song is the only song that should be playing. The end of the Aenor that I basically, that we haven't talked about yet, is the fact that he introduces them to this beautiful world, um... And he gives them a chance to go down and play with the children, the um, children of Iluvatar, which are also known as elves and men. And they sort of create this beautiful world together. And then he brings them back into what I'm assuming is the void. Um, And he shows them a different world called Ea, which is also beautiful. Um, And he tells them that they could go down and be a part of it, but in order to do that, they will have to leave this world and become the Valar, and it would limit their power in order to sustain the world just as the world would then sustain them. Um, And when they do, some of them decide to go down to Ea, to this new Earth, and some of them decide to stay with their dad. Um, But when they go down on the planet, they realize that the planet... Um, Iluvatar showed them is not the planet that they are now stuck on. Um, They have to basically go off and now build this great world that they foresaw. And I think that's the whole thing until you realize a page or two later that it was all time travel. And they're back 
in their kingdoms that they had helped build with the children of Iluvatar before. Did I miss anything? I don't think it's time travel. No, it is time travel. Okay, hang on, because I totally flagged this. Where did I... He has a sentence, and he says... He says something about how I am placing this country in a... Or I'm placing this world in a specific place in the depths of time and a within a certain range of stars and if you don't think this is important then you're not paying attention like straight up where did this come from it was a quote in the book and i have it in my notes but of course i didn't write the page number down next to it is this in the Valaquenta? no in the anulandale okay i'm capping the end of the anulandale we didn't talk about it before okay man where was it because it was amazing um, yeah, so they, here we go. So on my page 18, we have a quote that says, and amid all the splendors of the world, its vast halls and spaces and its wheeling fires, Iluvatar chose a place for their habitation in the deeps of time and in the midst of innumerable stars. And this habitation might seem a little thing to those who consider only the majesty of the Anuar. Anur. Ah. And then there's a very long quote describing them. Um, and then it goes, or who consider only the immeasurable vastness of the world, which is still, which still the Anur are shaping, and not the minute precision to which they shape all things therein. And two pages later, um, on page 20, it says, So began their great labors, in wastes unmeasured and unexplored, and in ages uncounted and forgotten, until in the deeps of time, and in the midst of the vast halls of Ea, there came to be that hour and that place, where was made the habitation of the children of Iluvatar. So they basically went back in time to create the world that they were playing in before. Okay, I see Was the way saying. that I read that. I read that as more Iluvatar was showing them what they could do, and then they decided to go do it. Yeah, I sort of thought that, you know, they were living outside of time, and then they realized that to actually have this thing, they needed to make reality happen as we know it, and they had to do things the slow way. I don't know, because on page 18, it sounds like the Anur are on Earth interacting with people. See, this is problematic for me, since I have a completely different version of the book. Okay, so the the one line that puts me into more what I was thinking, I suppose, is that, but when the Velar entered into Ea, however you say that, they were at first astounded and at a loss, for it was as if not was yet made, which they had seen in vision, and all was but on point to begin and yet unshaped. So it, it implies that what they saw before was in a vision? Yeah, that's how I interpreted it, too. But I think, I mean, it's Iluvatar. Everything is wishy-washy. He has, you know, these great, grand, incomprehensible superpowers, and then... We, we mere humans can't even begin to comprehend them. You know, even the elves in all their eternity can come slightly closer. And you could say that time means nothing in the void. So maybe right. they did kind of go back and forth. Mm-hmm. What did everybody think about Melkor in this section? When he was tearing... No, where he's trying to be good. I love how passionately you defend him. <laughs> yeah. I, I love it so much. <laughs> and he's Team Melkor. It was so... No, it's so sad. So he's on my page 18. 
Um, he's talking about how he feigned, even to himself at first, his desire to go thither and order all things for the good of the children of Iluvatar, um, controlling the turmoils of the heat and the cold that had come to pass through him, which, by the way, pretty sure he's some kind of weather god. Um, I'm not sure. At first I thought it was talking about his temper, but then later it's talking about actual weather. Um... And so he's doing good things, and then his father comes down from the void and starts talking to Ulmo, the god of the sea, um, about how, you know, really, Melkor is a bad egg, and you should watch out for him because I think he's a threat to your beloved Manway. And I was just like, okay, Iluvatar, if you had kept to yourself, maybe this wouldn't have happened. I do agree with you. I guess it's difficult for me just because I know how many chances they give Melkor later. Well, and didn't, I mean, the key at the beginning of that line, which I can't find for myself, was this at, in the, uh, I, I knew Lindale or the Valaquenta? I knew Lindale. still at the end. I okay. Think, yes. I keep flipping back and forth, but was the, the line of, and he feigned himself, right? It sounds more like he was making a half-assed attempt to do some good stuff knowing that in his heart it wasn't there and he's like i'll do some good pretend that i can control this thing but well no because it says and he feigned even to himself at first which is the idea that he didn't know that this wasn't true in his heart of hearts um until his father came down and turned all of his siblings against him i don't know i lie to myself an awful lot so (laughs) (laughs) i don't know i feel like actions are important and he was making the effort but our actions whatever his internal are actions were. important to the all-knowing Iluvatar who knows everything that has ever and will ever happen and what is in Melkor's heart does it matter that he tried yes did he really try was it all Iluvatar's uh, desire after all just to well, that was the other dick thing, through. but we're not going back. We're not going back three pages so that I can quote how much I hate this man. Um, All right. So the Valaquenta. Yeah. So Emmy is on Team Melkor. I am, well, and- no, because this is the interesting thing. So this is like the Alundale is like a story about family from the family's point of view, right? We're kind of seeing it through that lens. And then the Valaquenta is told... Um, by the elves and so they have a totally different view of all of these people and melkor is totally shafted um in my personal opinion but um basically the eight to ten pages we read before the valaquenta are summed up in the valaquenta in two paragraphs which made me feel like i wasted my time to be fair melkor has done a lot of terrible shit to the elves so they can shaft him. No. <laughs> well, that's what I'm saying. Like, this is lore told thousands of years after the creation of Earth. So, we get, like, a totally different point of view on everyone. Yeah. Anyway, who wants to recap the Valaquenta and go through, basically, the greatest hits of the people? The the uh, names of the Valor that I mentioned earlier are Einar that come down to... Arda, or Ea, whatever, and become basically like a pantheon of gods there, and take those names and their genders. And then a couple of lesser Einar come down, and they become what are called Maiar, which I I guess you could kind of call them demigods. You've seen them in some of the books. The Maiar, you get like actual... Uh, Gandalf is one. Um, 
So uh, he's mentioned in the Valaquenta, not not by Gandalf, but he is mentioned. Um, so they are lesser gods. Speaking of everyone having different yeah. names. <laughs> um, and he... A lot of people call the Maiar angels, or like like equivalency, if you want to put it there. I like to think of them more as like demigods. I don't know. Usually they are associated with one of the Valar, like their particular friends or servants to one. And then at the end, it goes into Melkor's beginnings and his own Maiar servant, otherwise known as Sauron. Dun dun dun. <laughs> I did feel like that, Jack, because it ends with, of enemies, it did end with, like, a big dun-dun-dun It really did. And Sauron. Yeah. Which I was like, hey, that's actually, that's a name I know. Yeah. You you did also, like, uh, you probably didn't recognize the name, but Gandalf is talked about. Yeah, I didn't recognize him at all. Um, I only know because I knew that Gandalf was one of the Maiar. I also really love... That Sauron's other name, which we don't hear that often, is Gorthar the Cruel. Like, I get what that a this name. predates Dungeons and Dragons, but like that is the most <laughs> Dungeons and Dragons name I've ever heard in my life. It's the star. It's gotta be my the next Cruel. Character. I feel like we just met like a dwarf on the side of the road who has delusions of grandeur. Sauron is a much better name. Yep, <laughs> I agree. And I'm really excited. I actually love how in the Silmarillion we get to see a lot of Sauron being an evil asshole and not just like an eye in the sky. An eyeball. Yeah. <laughs> it is nice when you have a body. Yeah, and you can do things. I didn't have a lot in the Valaquenta to talk about um, because it is mostly like this god has these powers and is married to this person and they live in this place. Yeah. Um, but one of the things that I really wanted to talk about was um, Tulkas, if I'm pronouncing that right. And he's like the god of physical prowess, right? He loves wrestling and running through the forest. Um, And I thought that was like a really ableist aspect of humanity to take on in a god. I don't know. Um, Like, what does that say for the rest of Middle-earth? Oh, these books are very ableist. I was trying to think of a character who had any kind of disability in The Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit, and it's been so long, but all I could think of was Theoden, and then Theoden's, you know, um, age is sucked out of him, and he's back to being a young and fit person. Um, arguably Frodo at the end loses a finger. Um... Yeah, that's not okay. That's not really what I was thinking. But no, I know, I know, I know, I know. I, You're right. That's why, quote unquote, arguably. No. Um, and I and that sort of thing happens. I don't know if often, but it does sort of happen in this one too. That people will lose hands or limbs or something, but then it won't really matter. Like it won't affect them in any way. It's a little more Star Warsy than actual yeah. sufferingy. Like even there's definitely a. Like, I can kind of understand where maybe losing an arm, an elf who's immortal is just kind of like, well, that's gone now. I've got a million years to get used to it. Get used to but it. But <laughs> there is, at one point, a human guy who definitely has his hand bitten off. Ugh. And then it's it's never really... I mean, he's got some other shit going on, but he may actually die soon after that. I don't remember how the events played out in that chapter. Like, the order of them. Well, we'll get there eventually. Yeah. 
In fact, we should keep that in mind because it's possible he gets his hand back. See, this is what I'm talking about. Yeah. In so many fantasy novels, they are terribly injured in some way that should disable them for the rest of their life. And then either they get a, a prosthetic that works just as well, if not better, um, than what mm-hmm. they had in the first place. And I'm thinking of Luke Skywalker and Peter Pettigrew here. Um, and then, or uh, somehow it grows back. Or yeah. it never, it's like it never happened. And it's like, well... Or there's magic. Exactly. Like, what are we even doing? I don't know. I saw this god and I was like, really? Really? Yeah, no, this is a this is a good point of view. I'm glad you brought that up. Because honestly, it hadn't even occurred to me because I'm a bit of a jerk. And so I'm glad this was brought up. Meanwhile, I had gotten, I, I had gotten focused in, I was thinking about, you know, as we were introducing, you know, like Yavanna and stuff it whether they were how the quote-unquote female Valar were described as compared to the male ones and like oh are we just getting physical descriptions of all of the female ones but then we did get somewhat similarly described oh what are they wearing um and I don't remember who I was noticing like okay it's not just but one of my favorite things in this is that when the gods sort of make themselves clothes and like actual clothes, not just their bodies, or, or the Valar, I should say, and then later on when the elves come along and start being craftsmen, one of the first things they do is make armor and weapons. And I'm like, you don't even have death yet. You don't have <laughs> violence. Why? How did this come from? Why? Why do you have armor and swords? Like, mm-hmm. Why? It just, I get that maybe Tolkien wanted his, his Valar to look cool, but why aren't they all just in tunics or whatever? You know what? Actually, I think I'm going to disagree a little bit with you about them not having violence because there's that whole thing about the first war being waged through music. You're right. You're absolutely right. Okay. But you're right. They don't have physical violence because at the point where this happened, um, which is where Melkor introduces Discord and Iluvatar tries to get rid of it by singing louder and louder songs. Um, They don't have bodies. So, like, they don't have physical violence that would require armor or swords. Like, the concept hasn't Mm -hmm. been introduced to the world yet. Mm Mm-hmm. And later on, there is... we, We do, like, see the very first murder happen. But, like, the characters already had swords. That's what they use. (laughs) <laughs> and so it, I don't know, it just strikes me as very strange. It is. Um, and they already had armor and that sort of thing. I also, we didn't really go into this, but I do want to say, I really love this picture that I have in my head of before the world was ready for the children of Iluvatar, the war that the Velar waged with Melkor, of just being yes. like this. Like, like mountains coming up and volcanoes and like just just like the earth at war with itself like this big magic battle but like shaping the world i don't know i really think that that's cool melkor is getting angrier and angrier as he tries to undo all of the works of aule that's how i'm pronouncing it it's a-u-l-e with umlauts and aule is like so tired of this shit is just like how i imagined it mm-hmm I I really like the image in my head that of them all being like five year olds and him kicking over their blocks, their towers of blocks and that sort of thing. I mean that's that's basically how it goes, right? Yeah. yeah. 
And for all we for all we know, they could be only five years old. Build things, he knocks them down. Melkor builds things, they knock it down. Um. So one thing I wanted to talk about was, I mean, okay, there's two things. I lied. Um, Varda, who is on my page 26, um, she's Manway's wife. So with Varda dwells Manway, the Lady of Stars, who knows all the regions of Ea. Um, and she is basically the Helen of Troy of these gods. Um, she is the most beautiful thing anyone has ever seen. And um, before the world was made, Melkor apparently had a thing for her um, while they were making music, and she rejected him. And so he hated her, and he um, is apparently still bearing a grudge now, thousands of years later. And I thought this was sort of an interesting introduction to like rape culture in middle earth um because it's that idea that these male velar are entitled to a companion of some kind mhm it was unnecessary <laughs> like it was it was very unnecessary it was just like here's another strike against melkor he holds a grudge yeah it was absolutely unnecessary. And I, I did want to make a quick note that um, as much as this, like, a lot of the attention is paid to the male Valar in this, as far as I am aware, as far as I remember, only one Valar is ever mentioned in The Lord of the Rings, and that is Varda, by a different name, by Elbereth. Like, that's the only one that I remember being talked and saying about in The Lord of the Rings. Yeah, wait, who was Elbereth? Because that was somebody. Varda is Elbereth. That's just what the elves call her. Everybody gets a different last name from the elves. Um, yeah. Yeah, the other thing that made me really sad about Varda um, was because, like, Manway shacks up with Varda in Valinor, um, and mm -hmm. he totally ditches his BFF for life, Ulmo, who is the Lord of the Water. And in the... Enulindale, Ilv, yeah, Iluvatar um, goes to Ulmo and is basically like, your brother Melkor is um, being a little shit. And the <laughs> excuse he gives to turn Ulmo against him is that uh, Manway, thy friend who you love so much, like, is being hurt by Melkor. And I was like, this feels like a lot of queer baiting because. They were best friends from the beginning of time, and then there's they loved each other more than anyone, and then Varda shows up, and Manway leaves the sea to go inland with her. And I just thought that was really, really sad. I wrote poor Ulmo next to it. <laughs> As they are beings of, like, actual immortality, not like the elves that can be killed, but, like, they will always exist... Like, does time apart really matter? I just loved how Ulmo was described. I Me too. Really cool. He's ferocious. But um, I just thought it was, it says in this one line, it's like, before Valinor was made, he was closest to him in friendship. And it's like this idea that now he's not. And you're right, time doesn't matter, except in that way that, I don't know, relationships fade. Like, sure, you don't have to talk to each other for a thousand years and you can still be friends, but, like, priorities do shift. And he doesn't show up to any of the councils of Valar unless something is seriously going wrong. 
Yeah, that's that's fair. It is it is pretty sad. He like isolates himself while all of his mm-hmm. other siblings go off. I don't know. Just really quickly here, um, of the Maiar who are mentioned, the important ones other than Sauron to remember are Melian. Um, she comes back. Um, she lives in Middle Earth, not at the moment, not not Valinor. Uh, which are both on the new planet, but are different continents, let's say. And the other one that was kind of important not to this story is Olorin, who is Gandalf. Ah, uh, there he is. Yeah. I didn't realize, like, when I was reading The Hobbit or The Lord of the Rings, that um, they were on the same world. I don't know what I was picturing when the elves sail into the west to go home, but... um. Not that they, they... These continents are connected, right? Because one of the Valar hates being... He keeps going back to Middle-earth. Yeah, so at the moment, the continents are connected. Things change okay. later. And also, the world is flat at the moment. Of course it is. <laughs> of course it is. That does change later, but at the moment, it is flat. Um, and well, now I'm now I'm picturing five year old Melkor like a cat who's knocking things off the edge. Yeah, pretty much into the void. <laughs> yep. So, and at the moment, Valinor, the continent of immortality and the gods, is a real place on Earth or on Arda. And you can we we'll see later. You can walk to Middle Earth from nice. Valinor. It's not recommended, but you can do it <laughs> over mountains. Yeah. It's over ice and basically over the North Pole type of thing. Nice. Okay, um, I have to sign off, um, but thank you guys for listening to me ramble and all of my feelings about Melkor. Yeah, I will talk to you guys later. Okay, Emmy had to leave us to go to work. Emmy had a lot of feelings about Melkor. Wow. I'm actually <laughs> really glad about this because, I don't know, I've... I always just hated Melkor because he's an evil piss baby. So I like that we have this different point of view. It's great. All right. I don't think there's really anything else that we need to discuss. No, I think part of what's going to be the most interesting is, you know, we can argue, you know, deep theological points all we want, but then we're going to, we have our basis that then we're going to keep tying back to as we move on into the quote unquote actual stuff. Yeah, I like I like that this book is sort of a fun adventure story and some deep theological stuff. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know what? I'm just going to say one thing that I actually meant to mention at the beginning. A line from that letter from Tolkien at the beginning of this book that I actually advise people not to read. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we should hilariously... I wanted us to keep this in mind while we had this discussion, but obviously I messed up there. So the line is, as said by Tolkien, I dislike allegory, the conscious and intentional allegory, yet any attempt to explain the purport of myth or fairy tale must use allegorical language. And I love that he says he dislikes allegory and then writes this chapter that is basically God and Lucifer and... <laughs> and if, it's it's like, literally allegory. <laughs> it's so allegorical. <laughs> oh, Tolkien. What a dude. It is, now I really want to go back and reread Paradise Lost because it's it's quite striking. I haven't ever read the whole thing, just 
a piece of it that I had to read in high school. I, I took an entire semester long class in Dublin on Paradise Lost, and it was super duper fascinating. And a little bit like this, kind of take it a chapter at a week. I can see why that would be fascinating. Um, and just so much comes from it and so many references to it. And even in like actual church doctrine these days, and you're like, oh my God, this is like from this poem that that dude wrote. Yeah. As somebody, I don't know if I want to go into this on the podcast. I don't know. As somebody <laughs> without religion, like ever, mm-hmm. I very much, it, it very similarly to Emmy though, I very much identify with Lucifer as a character. Mm-hmm. As being like, no, fuck you. I'm out doing my oh, yeah. own shit. Well, Lucifer is a, a, a tremendous character. And I think that's part of why I don't like Melkor is because we don't get into enough of his actual like qualms. We're pretty much just told he wanted to sing something else. And I'm picturing him. I always pictured him as like that that kid who tries to play cello in the back of the band, but doesn't actually know how to and just puts discord in. You're like, dude, just shut up. Yeah. <laughs> You know, we don't we don't really get much of his reasons for it, aside from that just he did. Yeah, and I don't think we ever do, at least not mm-hmm. in this book. Yeah. I don't know if that is something that Tolkien ever wrote down. I haven't really read his further mm-hmm. Yeah, like, and the book are we of meant Lost to Tales just and... Yeah. Are we meant to just add in our own kind of Lucifer characterization to him so Tolkien didn't bother writing it down or is he just meant to be evil and not have those those complicated thought processes? Who knows? That's that was sort of the feeling that I got that he that mm-hmm. Iluvatar just meant for him to be evil and to be right. his op- opposing force in the world. Or I guess yeah. we should mention that at the very end of the Valaquenta, uh, it is mentioned that when Melkor is in Arda, he becomes known as Morgoth, the great mm-hmm. enemy, or the dark enemy. Yes. And will, I believe, henceforth be called Morgoth. Yeah, because I think he, his name has been rejected from him. Well, I don't... He might call himself Melkor, but the elves call him Morgoth. Right, right. I don't think... Like, other people are like, you're no longer a Valar. I'm sure he doesn't say that about himself, though. Well, yes. Yes, they've kicked him out. <laughs> yeah. All right, I think that that will do it for this week. If you guys had any thoughts or you are also at this point on the side of Melkor, the dark enemy, um, you can email us your thoughts at you want to read Tolkien at gmail.com or tweet us at to read Tolkien. Yes, please, please let us know or warn us as it were. Yeah. <laughs> and as we are uh, a brand new podcast, we would appreciate any reviews or ratings or anything like that on iTunes and subscribing and telling your friends all right so i've been caitlin i've been rachel and that other person's been emmy yeah and emmy abandoned us and (laughs) we will see you all next week adios i don't know why i signed off in spanish but it was Hey y'all, editing Caitlin here, uh, just jumping in because we forgot to mention the homework for next episode, which is chapter one of the Quintus Silmarillion. Thanks so much. Bye.